Father, we come to you this morning and we ask very simply that you allow us to understand your goodness a little bit more. That you would allow our hearts to be open to your word, that you allow our minds and our spirits to be receptive to, your, to you and to understanding you. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Who is God? God is holy. God is sovereign. God is good. Uh, this one, as much as the other two could be confusing or, or really sort of ethereal and big picture, this one, this one has really just two veins that it goes down. And, and if we're not careful, we have a tendency to lean toward one. We talk about things being good a lot. You could say, I am a good golfer. What does that mean? It means that compared to the other people I play with, I'm better than them. But if I play with different people, they're going to be better than me. So what does it mean to be good? In that sense, it's just a relative construct of comparing one thing to another. Now we come to other things, and we say that this is the good book. Do we just mean that compared to other books, this one's good, but compared to maybe a different set of books, this one's bad? No, we mean this on an objective sense. On an objective sense, this is a moral right book. This is a, an ultimate. This is as high as it can be. There can be nothing better or more true. Uh, those are the two ways to look at something being good. God is objectively good. And we're going to have to hold that concept in mind as we talk about the goodness of God. Otherwise, what we will do inadvertently is put God on a relative scale. He's better than us. But just like in talking about God's holiness... We talked about God being perfect and other. Here we're talking about God being perfectly good. Not better than, but most good, most high, most perfect. Nothing could be better. Nothing can come close. So let's look at it. And there's a particular passage that, that really does two different things. One, it, it exemplifies what it means that God is good and two, it puts Christ in that position. It comes out of Mark chapter 10, and you know this story. This is a story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved? But he starts his question by saying, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answers that non-question first. Here's what it says. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. And as he, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. Now, we're not getting into what Jesus says to the rich young ruler, though it's fascinating, and it might not mean quite what we take it to mean, because the rich young ruler says, I've done everything good that I can do. And Jesus says, well, then give all your money to the poor and you can go to heaven. And if we're not careful, we misunderstand that. But the money was this guy's issue, right? That was his hang-up in following Jesus. But, but without going into that in much detail, we have this guy who comes up to Jesus and he says something that we might say. It's more formal than we would say it, but we say similar things to people. And he says, good teacher. And we go up to people and we compliment them. We use an adjective to describe them. And we, we compliment them on who they are, what they've done, or how they're doing things as our introduction engagement with them. And he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, whoa, do you mean that? No one is good but God alone. But we all know that there are some people who are good at teaching, right? There are some people in Jesus' time who, who weren't good at teaching. That's not a value statement one person to another. Couldn't he just be saying, hey, you who's very proficient at teaching? He could be. But that's not how they use the word. If we go back to the Greek, he's using a word that, that he is saying morally right, righteous teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's fascinating, the response, because half of Jesus' response is saying something, and half of his response is not saying something. The half of his response that is saying something says, why do you call me good? God alone is good. This guy is going to tell Jesus that he's followed the Torah, the law, since he was a little boy, which means he knows this. So he knows that God alone is good, and he refers to Jesus as good. So half of Jesus' response is how he says, God is the only one who's good, and you're calling me good? And the other half is his not saying, that doesn't apply to me. Right? If Jesus was affronted or offended by this guy calling him good, he would have told him, I'm not good. Uh, just look at Paul in, in the book of Acts where people come to him and they call him a god for what he's done or they, they exalt his name and he says, whoa, it's not me. It's God. You come back to Daniel like we talked about last week. Daniel comes before the king and the king says, oh, you're amazing for having done this. And Daniel says, whoa, it's not me. It's God. Jesus here is called a righteous person, a morally upright, right person, and he doesn't say, no, I'm not. He just simply says, only God is good, and you and I both know it. So if I'm good, I'm who? I'm God. That's what Jesus is saying in not correcting him. And it's not like that would be an oversight. In our culture, we're used to people overlauding somebody, praising them or complimenting them beyond what they really are. But here, if you were complimented to the level of God and you accepted that compliment, you were killed for accepting that compliment. So it wasn't accidental. 
in Christ's case. It was intentional. He knew he wasn't saying, I'm not good, but this guy calls him good, and Jesus accepts it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So let's look at where the Scripture calls God good. What does it mean by that? And then why does Jesus say no one is good but God? We're going to go back to Psalm chapter 100, verse 5. And as we've mentioned before, we're trying to come back to all of the different psalms that we went through this summer in our looking at the attributes of God to see how we tie back to what we've already been teaching. Psalm chapter 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. Yahweh is righteous. Really what that word means is he is the opposite of evil. It's not just that he's really, really good in a, in a way that we would make potentially relative. He says Yahweh is the opposite, the antithesis of evil. Everything that evil is, Yahweh is not. Everything that Yahweh is, evil is not. So it's not mostly good. It's a way that only gives two options, either all of this or all of this. And he says he's the opposite of this. So he's all of this. Yahweh is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Now, we talked before about communicable communicable versus incommunicable attributes of God, the attributes of God that can be passed on to us as people and the attributes of God that cannot be passed on to us as physical mortal people. This is one that can be. Now, in all the attributes of God that can be passed on, we can only, we can only play them out to a certain level. We're not going to be perfect in these, but we can have these and reflect these. So as we look to demonstrate the goodness that God has put in us through his Holy Spirit being in us, how would we do that? Well, we would do that at least as a first step, the same way that God shows his goodness. So how does God show his goodness? According to this verse, Psalm 100 verse 5, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. So, what does his goodness look like? His goodness looks like steadfast love. His goodness looks like faithfulness. What do those two words mean? What does it mean to have steadfast love? What does it mean to have faithfulness? Steadfast love says, even when affronted, even when offended, even when sinned against, my love, care for this person, this being, this thing doesn't change. It might be hurt. I might be hurt, but my love for this person doesn't change. Faithfulness then goes on to say, not only does it not change, it chooses to remain only there. So it's not that you still love this person or this thing and you love other stuff. It's that you love this person and this thing and only this person and only this thing. In God's case, his love is so great. His love is so perfect. His goodness is so great. His goodness is so perfect that he can love each one of us to the fullest extent without compromising others. I, on the other hand, can only love my wife. I couldn't try to love my wife and some other woman 
It wouldn't work. I can only love her. Now, I can love her and I can love my children, but it's in different ways. God, on the other hand, loves all of his children in the same way without compromising one over the other. If we're going to show the goodness that God has put in us, we must show it through our steadfast love where? To our spouses, if we have spouses. To our children, if we have children. To our friends, if we have friends. To those around us, the other believers, particularly. If we're going to show his goodness, we show it through our faithfulness to those people. Not saying, oh, you're not perfect, so I'm going to take a little bit from you and I'm going to run to somebody else and try to take a little bit from them and only be, be half in in different places. That doesn't mean jump in and do everything you can at the church. That's not what we're asking for. But this is calling us to be faithful to God, certainly, to each other as well. That's how we show his goodness. Some of these words are words that we hear in other places. If we went to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we would see this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, steadfast love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The three ways that God says that his, that, that his goodness is shown are all exemplified again in the fruit that the Spirit develops in us. Now keep in mind, as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it does not say the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of of the Spirit would indicate that these come as individual, isolated things. You can have love, and then maybe sometime later you have joy. Maybe you can have peace, but you don't have kindness. If you don't have one of these, if it's not growing in you at all, what you can know is the Spirit is not developing fruit in you because He develops one fruit, which is all of this. You could think about it like a bunch of Bananas, I think they're called a bunch or a bunch of grapes, a cluster of grapes. It's a cluster of grapes. You could think about it like a cluster of grapes, and each of the different grapes are one of the different words in that. They come as one. They come in, in one vine growing together. That's what we have. If we want to show God's goodness, that's how we do it. We do it through exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit. We do it through specifically our steadfast love, through specifically our faithfulness to each other. That's how we would show that. Why do we not? That is a legitimate question. Why do we not show this goodness? Why does Jesus say no one's good except God alone? We know that there are good people. Now we've just muddied the word. And if you're not careful in argument, in debate, or in constructive thought, we, we start changing the use of a word in the middle of what we're doing without realizing it. We start talking about something else, and then we can't figure out where our logical brain got lost. We know that there are good people in our use of the word good, which is relative. And the Bible says there are no good people in its use of the word, which is objective. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. 
And if you're looking for these verses, you can find them in your Bible, or in, you can find them in your Bible. Isn't that a novel place to find all your verses? <sighs> you can find in your bulletin a QR code, and you can follow that QR code and find all the verses that we are talking about. Uh, but Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, he uses the word righteous and not the word good. So how are we correlating these two? In the relative sense of the word good, we cannot correlate these. But when the guy, the rich young ruler, came and spoke to Jesus, he called him morally righteous the objective sense. And here, Paul is making sure we know that there is not one person in the entire history of the world, other than Jesus, who was good throughout their whole life. Now, I make that one distinction because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God created people. He looked at what he created. He says, this is very good. This is very morally perfect. How could he say that about them? If we just read here that there's no one righteous, not even one. It's because they had not yet sinned. So in that sense, there was no sin, there was no breaking, there was no marring on who they were at that point in time. Two chapters later, or really a chapter and six verses later, they sin. And God never says that again about people. Because we're no longer good we're broken, we're sinful, we're dying. No one is righteous. No one is objectively good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, or they have all become worthless. And we're coming back to that. No one does good, not even one. That is a very harsh set of words. True, but very harsh. What do we do with that? What do we do with the verse that says, they have together become worthless? Well, first of all, we need to understand that this is not actually a value statement. We see the word worthless and we attribute value to it. Something that is worthless has no value, should be trashed and burned. I have boxes from our move. They are worthless to me. But this is not saying there's no value in these people. But in trying to attain to moral goodness, objective goodness, moral rightness, we are worthless in being able to attain that. And until we accept that reality, we can never understand Christ right. Because we will always see ourselves as better than what we really were. We were worthless. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, so much loved the world, that he sent his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Right? That's the value that God has on us. 
but our ability to attain moral rightness before him is worthlessness. It can't do it. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, We have all, there's another one of those great qualifiers that says it's everyone, not just most people, right? There's no one not in this camp. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our inquiries like the wind take us away. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. What does it mean for our righteousness to be like a polluted rag? If I could have permission to be a little bit gross for just a moment, whether you give me permission or not, I'm going to say it. This is the idea of going to the bathroom and using toilet paper to wipe yourself. That is a polluted garment. So, so this is not just your rag fell on the floor and it now has germs on it sort of thing. This is a disgustingly dirty rag and we're holding that up like, God, look at how righteous we are. That never will attain to any level of righteousness. It's worthless in getting there because it's filthy. Why is it filthy? Because we are marred because of our sin. Romans 5.12 says that through one man, sin entered the world, and that sin transferred to all people because we have all sinned. So we're all in this polluted rag sort of thing where the best we can do is still broken before God, still worthless in trying to attain rightness. And as we seek to do that on our own, we miss it. But God, but God is good in everything he says. God is good in everything he does. And most importantly, God is good in who he is. His very character is that of goodness. Have you ever wondered why a thing is sinful? It's an interesting question. It's great for a discussion. But a thing is sinful not because God said it was wrong, but because that thing defies who God is. The point of that is this. While lying is wrong not because God said it was wrong, but because God is true, and lying defies this characteristic of God, so here we see this goodness of God. And we see that the goodness is not something that he chose was good. The goodness just boils out of who he is. And that matters. Because when you look at God's holiness and you try to understand it, we have to remember that even in his holiness that would melt us like wax, he is still good. In his sovereignty that we don't always understand, he is still good. In his justice, in the use, the right use of his wrath towards sinful people and things, he is still good. In his mercy and his willingness to forgive people, he is still good. Because all of these things boil out of this goodness that he is. His attributes are never distinct from one another, but always held tightly together. So God is good in what he says. 
And God is good in what he gives or what he does. And God is good in his character. We're going to come back this afternoon, and I hope you all join us. We're going to have child care for little kids. I was checking with the person who actually knows what's going on, and she gave me a nod. Yes, there's child care for little kids. Our desire is that even junior high, high school kids, or certainly at least high school kids, would join us here. Why? Because God has been good to you too. We want to hear how God has been good to you. You're not asked to come just to sit and participate. Our desire is that you would come and share what God has done in your life to show his goodness to you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 10 to 12, uh, talks about, well, we know this verse, it starts out with, uh, if I could think of how it starts, goodness. Knock and it will be given to you. Seek and you will, or ask and it will be given to you. Knock, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And then Jesus goes on, though, to a, to a passage that not many of us talk about. And it's about fish and serpents and bread and stones. And he says this, You all are broken, but even if your child asks you for a fish, how many of you are going to give them a snake to kill them? Even in your brokenness, if your children need bread, how many of you are going to give them stones to eat? Well, no one does. Well, you might. But in general, people don't do that. When their children need food, they give them food. They don't give them something they can't eat or something that will hurt them. And Jesus says, so even in your brokenness, you understand how to give good gifts. How much more does God know how to give good to you when you ask him? Now, God's understanding of what might be good for us is maybe different than our understanding of what is good for us. I understand very clearly that cheesecake should be eaten at every meal. I know this. And every time I ask God for it, he doesn't give it to me. Okay, not every time, because sometimes I do get cheesecake. Okay, that's a joke. I don't actually ask God for that. But if I ask God for something that's not actually good for me, what if I asked God for a venomous snake as my meal? God, just give me a live, poisonous, venomous snake. As a giver of good gifts, should he do that? No. It's not actually a good gift. Now, we know that. Sometimes, though, we ask for things that we think are good things, and God says no. Why? Because they're not actually good things. Sometimes we ask for things because we think they are good things, and God says yes. Why? Because they're actually the good things that we should have. But when God in his sovereignty chooses to not give us something that we want, you know what we can hold tightly to? He is good. When? All the time. Not just when I get what I want, but when I don't get what I want. Not just when I get what I, what I want, but sometimes when I get particularly what I don't want. God is good. In his holiness, God is good in his sovereignty. God is good in his justice and his mercy and his forgiveness. God is good in his immutability, his unchangeableness. James 1.17 says that God gives is the giver of all good gifts. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no changing or shifting due to, or no shadow or shifting due to change. God doesn't change 
That's good. God gives us good gifts and doesn't change from that. That's good. We can, we can emulate this quality of God by the goodness that we show to other people. So he alone is the objectively good one, but he's given us his spirit so that we can show that to people. How do we then show that to people? We particularly show the goodness of God to other people that resides in us by our steadfast love for people. We particularly show the goodness of God by our faithfulness to his people. Christ alone is the good one. Christ alone is the one that we can go to. Let's read this verse again. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. And then Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one good one, and that is God. And he accepts the compliment. He accepts the praise. And now we can show that through our steadfast love. We can show that through our faithfulness. Who is God? God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for allowing us to know you, to honor you, to follow you, to understand you. Lord, we ask, inept as we are, we ask that you would continue to grow in our hearts and in our minds the glory of your son. Continue to cause us to know you and love you, to follow you. Allow us, Father, the strength that it takes to show your goodness through our steadfast love, to show your goodness through our faithfulness so that you, Father, would be glorified and honored in all things and in all ways. We do thank you for loving us, and it's in your amazing and holy name we pray. Amen.